My guest on the show this week is psychologist and TEDx speaker Daniel Crosby. We have a fascinating discussion about behavioural psychology and how we often make irrational decisions. If you're a marketer or give advice of any kind, don't miss this interview. Welcome to episode 141 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. As always, I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy from Edinburgh, helping people like you keep your marketing strategy simple and the bullshit at bay. If you need help with your marketing, please visit rogeredwards.co.uk and get in touch. It doesn't need to be full-scale marketing strategy either. We could talk about developing a content marketing and social media plan or creating and developing your social media profiles, launching your product to your customers, maybe recording and launching your first podcast, or maybe just talk about building your blog. Whatever it is, please do get in touch and let's chat. So let's talk to Dr. Daniel Crosby. We chat about what behavioral psychology is and why it's important to understand how people make decisions, why we all have biases that often lead us to making the wrong decisions, the key elements of emotion, ego, conservation and attention, and why they affect customer behaviour, why we need to get outside help to overcome our biases and irrationality, and how TED Talks teach you that stories are Trojan horses for facts. Educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities, Dr. Daniel Crosby is a psychologist and behavioural finance expert who helps organisations understand the intersection of mind and markets. His ideas have appeared in Huffington Post and Risk Management Magazine, as well as his monthly columns for WealthManagement.com and Investment News. Daniel was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by Monster.com and a financial blogger you should be reading by AARP. When he's not consulting around market psychology, Daniel enjoys independent films, fanatically following St. Louis Cardinals baseball, and spending time with his wife and two children. So let's get straight into that interview with Daniel, right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Daniel Crosby, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Daniel, tell me, where are we Skyping each other from? I'm calling you from Edinburgh, as always. And I am here in sunny Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia would be sunny because Edinburgh is absolutely deluged in rain today. We have we have not had a good summer this year, Daniel. It seemed to have rained pretty much every day. So I envy you the sun. Yeah, we've we've had a very rainy summer as well. So don't uh, don't get too envious. <laughs> Daniel, you've got a fabulously fascinating CV. You're a TEDx speaker. You're an author. You're a psychologist. You're a behavioral finance expert. 
all these things are really interesting and I'd really like to dig into that this afternoon and talk to you about behavioral science and how we can apply that to the marketing of financial products. But maybe before we get into that in a bit more detail, could you give the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast a little bit of insight into your background about where you came from and and how your career developed? What what makes Daniel Crosby tick? Uh, what, What makes me tick is either intellectual curiosity or attention deficit disorder, depending on how <laughs> generous you want you want to be, because I have had a varied, uh, varied career to be sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist by education, so okay. I went into my PhD program uh, with an eye to becoming a shrink, and mm-hmm. you know, talking to people about their mothers and all of that. Um, but about three years into my doctoral program, I really burned out. I mean, the the heaviness. Um, the, the heaviness of that work, which is important work, and I'm glad there are people uh, that do it that are better at it than I was. Uh, the heaviness of that work really got to me. And I said, you know, I love studying human behavior. I love thinking about why people do the things that they do, but I don't want to do it in this clinical sort of medical context. And so my father uh, was a, is, was and is a, a financial advisor. Okay. And he and he said, well, you know, son, why don't you look at business applications of this work? And that's what got me started down the path. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because this whole the psychology of the way things works is weaved into our lives. And obviously advertisers and, and, and persuasive people use these techniques to get us to buy things in, in pretty much all avenues of life, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons why psychology is such a good fit for me is because it's a discipline that sort of co-ops every other discipline and, you know, it sort of inserts itself in every conversation uh, because wherever people are, there we are as well. So it's it's a great fit. And how did you how did you go about applying your academic training to a specific industry, financial services? You know, it was really sort of organic. I mean, it was just, I think, like a lot of people's careers, uh, as much a product of chance and luck as, as anything else. My mm-hmm. first uh, my first gig out of my PhD program was with a, a consultancy here in Atlanta that works with a large bank uh, to help vet bankers pre-hire. So before okay. this bank would hire an executive and pay them a bunch of money, uh, they would bring me in to give them a personality assessment, an IQ test, and uh, determine whether or not they'd be sort of a, a worthwhile person to work with. And so there at the bank, I got exposed to behavioral economics and then soon to behavioral finance, which is sort of a subdiscipline of behavioral economics. And so, uh, frankly, I mean, I wish I could attribute to something wonderful in myself, but <laughs> it, was, it was really just got lucky. So, so effectively, just taking it that a little bit further, you would sit and you would ask questions of these potential hires. And as a result of the answer to their questions and their body language, you could give the company an, an assessment as to whether that individual would be suitable for the job. Is that what you were doing? That's right. So we would give them uh, sort of a short form IQ test. Uh We would give them a battery of personality tests. And then they would have a half day interview with me, like a four four hour interview with me, which I don't, you know, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And so, uh, yeah, by the end of it, you have a very clear sense of who they are and what they're about. And sort of through a war of attrition, <laughs> their true their true personality has come through. And you know, having some idea about the culture of the company, you can say whether they're 
you know, whether they're a good fit, whether they're sharp enough, etc. That's really interesting. I was talking to somebody recently who went for an interview with a with a company <clears throat> or thought they were going for an interview with a company. And the entire process was by psychometric test. They didn't actually sit down and have an interview with a human being, which I, I did think was a little bit strange because I, I would have thought you would have wanted to have done both, really, like like you've just explained there, to get an idea of what they're like on paper, but also what they're like in a real life situation. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting dilemma you bring up because uh, my impulse as just someone who roots for the human family and wants to believe, uh, you know, wants to believe in in things like the human ability to to judge a person's metal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not much evidence to back that up. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that says that we can that, that we're easily lied to, we're easily fooled, that we're not good judges of character, that we're not good judges of what makes uh, someone an excellent employee. So I, I mean, you could you could make a case. You could make a case for the way it was handled in that situation, even though it does sort of fly in the face of what feels good mm. as a person. Uh, it feels kind of cold and sterile, but you could certainly make a case for that approach. Yeah, I've always worked in an industry where face-to-face has always been very important. Obviously, financial advisors sat in front of people talking to them about their finances. And from a marketing point of view, my background is marketing. A lot of that tends to be getting to know people face-to-face so that you can work out what their problems are and what their needs are and and, and suggest a a solution to them. So the possibility of cutting out that face-to-face, even if it's over, over Skype or video like this, just seems to be quite alien to me but i guess as you say it, it's one way of doing it that, that will perhaps um, gain traction as we go forward well it's it's interesting because i i feel like you said it's probably remarkably job specific because financial advisors i mean so much of their role and their success is down to being personable and being good people people so, so one of the things that we found and i i hope this isn't offensive to anyone but we we found that even things that you would think would be desirable, like general intelligence, weren't weren't always desirable. We actually found that in most jobs, uh, general intelligence was highly, highly predictive of of job success. So, mm-hmm. you know, all all else being equal, you want a smart person in that role. Uh, but we found that with salespeople, you actually didn't want the smartest person in the room. We we found that salespeople, uh, sort of great intelligence, was negatively core- correlated with their ability to connect with people uh, and that they also got bored with a sales type position. So uh, it is very job specific and I can absolutely see why uh, for a position like a financial advisor that that face to face assessment would be so important. Mm-hmm. And, and and moving into the area of, of behavioral finance, the science of behavioral finance, I think I know what it is, but I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to the podcast today who probably, again, would like a a deeper uh, explanation of of the concept. Could you just take us through what this actually means, Daniel? So for me, sort of a colloquial definition of behavioral finance is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human beings. Right. You know, we, uh, we dream up financial markets, but we also screw them up. We're also, the, <laughs> you know, we're, we're the creators and also the destroyers of, of financial markets. And so uh, many uh, financial models are built in sort of simplified, elegant mathematical terms that are 
are beautiful and, and make nice models, but don't account for the irrationality or the flightiness or the quirks of human behavior. Mm-hmm. So behavioral finance just tries to reintroduce the messiness of humanity into that conversation, really. And and, and would that manifest itself? I mean, as, as an observer, I often get quite um, alarmed by how markets seem to react to what the newspapers are saying or what is on the news. Is that the sort of thing we're talking about? Um, the markets are just reacting. It's almost it's almost like Chinese whispers, isn't it? One person says something, and before you know it, a comp- company is completely destroyed and their share price is completely flattened because of what people are saying about them, as opposed to what they're actually doing. Yeah, that's that is one great and I think a readily understandable example is just the way that we overreact. Uh, or or sometimes underreact mm-hmm. to things that are in the in going on in the media. I mean, I would frankly say uh, that the U.S. has underreacted uh, mm-hmm. to things lately, and all of that is uh, an interesting study in human behavior. Perhaps you could give us an example of how this would work in a in a finance situation with a financial advisor sat behind a desk talking to a client. What are the sort of behaviors that you would expect to see? Um, from the experience that you've had? So one of the things that I did in my latest book, The Laws of Wealth, mm-hmm. was I, t- I took this universe of investor misbehavior uh, because I, I sat down and I counted up all of the biased ways that we can interact with money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that there were over 100 identified in the psychological oh, literature. But that's sort of an unwieldy list and it's not very not very useful. And so what I did was I looked at those 100 and I divided them up uh, into just uh, into just four different uh, ways that these things usually manifest itself. So one is the the very thing that you talked about. Uh, which is emotion, Mm. which is uh, that our feelings, that our affective state tends to drive our memory Mm -hmm. and our risk perception. Mm -hmm. So you ask someone who's having a good day, you know, how risky the market is. And it's a very different thing uh, than someone who's having a bad day. And studies have also shown uh, that something as simple as weather can have a very, very dramatic impact. So to, to use our earlier example, you know, all else being equal, the, the markets in Scotland feel scarier and more risky uh, than the markets in Atlanta do today, just because of something as simple uh, and mood enhancing or mood depressing as the weather outside. And so that, yeah, emotion is just one of those sort of four ways that we could get this wrong. And what are the other three? So the, the next one I talk about is ego, mm-hmm. uh, which is this tendency for us to maintain feelings of competence at the expense of clear-eyed decision-making. Right. So uh, studies I, I cite in the book show that uh, this is especially prevalent among men, which is probably surprising to no one. And uh, we, we found in a study of men that 94, uh, 94% of men think they're more athletic than average, 95% of men... Uh, think that they are smarter than average, and 100% of the men surveyed thought that they were more interpersonally savvy, like better people people than than average. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can't all be true, right? We, we have this we have this inclination to think of ourselves as faster, better, smarter than the next person, uh, but that can lead uh, so on the plus side, that leads us to get out of bed in the morning yeah. uh, and, and it uh, propels us to do things that are low probability, like start a restaurant or start a small business, you know, both of which fail 
at uh, at alarming rates, but people keep opening restaurants, and we're glad they do uh, because of overconfidence bias. Um, but in the markets, it can really re- lead us to make make poor decisions. These these biases again, the, the, it's a very fascinating area, and, and I've done a little bit of work on this myself from a marketing point of view. And one of the ones that fasc- fascinates me a lot is confirmation bias. Um, and I guess maybe that happens um, in the field of investments and finance as well, because what what happens here is that you have a personal opinion about something. It could be a political idea, or it could be that a certain market is strong. And you'll then go onto the internet or or read up on it, and what you'll do is you'll focus on finding stuff that reinforces your own viewpoint as opposed to going online and looking for something that refutes your view. And all that does is it gives you more confidence to follow your gut, if you like. And and people can make the wrong decisions by confirming their own views, by finding people that agree with them as opposed to finding people who disagree with them. Does that work out in some of the work you've been doing as well? That does. That would be sort of a subset of this ego that I'm mm. talking about, because people um, people don't want to work hard. I mean, <laughs> uh, your brain, your brain, your brain is a very expensive organ. So yeah. your brain, uh, your brain accounts for uh, only about two to three percent of your body weight, uh, but it accounts for fully a quarter of your of your metabolism mm. so of your caloric spend 25% of it goes to, to thinking and so in a very real sense we are always always looking for ways to think less and one of the ways that we do this is by going around asking why might I be right instead of why might I be wrong uh, given the very mechanisms that you just talked about because it's it's taxing to go around questioning yourself all the time so we surround ourselves with with people and ideas uh, that very much back up the way that we already think about the world. Yeah, my son is uh, currently just leaving school. He's about to go to university. And quite often we'll have conversations where he said, oh, dad, I've just read this on the internet and this is the situation. I'll always say to him, well, okay, before you decide that that's actually the truth, go and find a, try and find a conflicting view so that you get a balanced viewpoint Otherwise, you might find that you end up being biased yourself. Yeah, it's a very it's a very scary thing. And, you know, um, in the U.S., I don't know how it exists where you are, but in the U.S., um, the news channels here, the 24 hour news channels have become very polarized, whereas, Mm. you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you might have had the nightly news that had a more or less centrist position. Um, individual left, you know, sort of far left and far right news channels have sprung up in the U.S. to feed this appetite for confirmation bias. Mm. And it makes us, you know, it drives us further apart. It makes us less uh, centrist. It makes us less rational in the way that we think about the world. And it's it's actually a very damaging thing. Yeah. And especially at the moment with some of the political situations that we've got going on in the background as well. So sure. so we've so we've talked about emotion, Daniel, and we've talked about ego. What was number three? So number three is conservation, <clears throat> which is our preference uh, for all else being equal. We have an asymmetric preference for gain over loss mm-hmm. and for the status quo over over action. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I give this great example in, an, in another one of my talks. I think it's great. <laughs> um, uh, this example of a German town that was sitting on top of some very valuable mineral deposits. And this, this German town 
had developed in sort of a haphazard and ugly way. It sat it sat alongside a, a serpentine river, and it had just sort of developed over the over the years in sort of a in sort of a careless way. And so the government came in and said, uh, "We will give you money. We're going to knock down your town. You know, this is a bad news, good news situation. The bad news is we're going to have to raise your town to knock it down to get at these mineral deposits." Mm-hmm. But the good news is we will build you back the finest town that anyone has ever seen, you know, three miles down the road, and you can design it any way you want. Uh, And so what they did, the townspeople convened, and they built the same ugly, snaking little (laughs) town three miles down the road, you know, given the option to do anything they wanted, they, they did what they had always done. And so in financial markets, this leads investors uh, in particular to over allocate to industries in which they work uh, and to the countries in which they live now. And that's, of course, doubly damaging, because if I'm uh, if I'm an American investing 95 percent of my wealth in the American stock market, well, of course, my employment is also tied to the fate of America, mm. uh, and so I'm not diversified that way. And if I work in financial services and I'm overweight uh, financial services companies because they seem familiar and less risky to me, then again, I've sort of I've sort of doubly lacked diversification there. No, we don't like change, do we? It's it's no. uh, you know better the devil you know, the status quo, that sort of thing. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And then the you know the the second piece of this is our preference for law uh, for gain over losses. You know, mm-hmm. I I spoke at a hedge fund conference recently in the Bahamas, and I was I was there with my family, so I was early to bed and didn't get to have any fun that night. But the the uh, the two of the gentlemen I had breakfast with the next morning had been out at the casino, um, and and one gentleman had lost five hundred dollars, and one had gained five hundred dollars. <laughs> right. And, you know, I was talking to them and both of these guys are enormously, enormously wealthy. I mean, everyone that was at this conference was a successful fund manager. And and the guy that had won $500, I said, you know, well, hey, congratulations. Good for you. And he goes, eh, you know, doesn't change my life. (laughs) And, And the guy who had lost $500 uh, was so upset. He was inconsolable. Mm. And he said, you know, this whole trip is ruined. So here he is, you know, in the middle of this beautiful place about to learn and improve his business. And he can't get over the fact that he's lost what is to him a, you know, a trifling sum of money. And so that's, again, our our asymmetrical preferences when it comes to loss and gain. We're, we're much more upset about a loss than we are happy about a comparably sized gain. And that gets us sideways in markets as well. And what was num- what's number four? So we've got emotion, we've got ego, we've got conservation. What's number four? So number four is what I call attention, uh, which is this idea that salience trumps probability. So salience is how easy it is for us to recall something uh, relative to probability, which is how you know how frequently it, it occurs. Mm. And so you know, sort of the classic example of this from this year, uh, from this year is that uh, five times five times as many people have died taking selfies as have died in shark attacks this year. Yes. Uh, and yet, you know, people are going to continue taking selfies and still be scared of sharks because. Shark attacks are much more salient. We can we can more easily imagine and create a vivid, uh, horrifying scenario involving a shark uh, than we ca- can, you know, being drunk and backing into traffic while taking a selfie. So 
Um, again, that salience trumps probability. And so, you know, back to your news example, we're bombarded with bad news all the time. And it constantly feels like uh, scary things are right around the corner, even though the sorts of doom and gloom that they talk about are probabilistically speaking, quite rare. I saw a fascinating um, infographic recently, actually, which illustrates this point perfectly. And it was almost saying that the opposite is true in terms of probability. So obviously the media bombard us with obviously nasty terrorism attacks, but these things aren't that frequent. And yet because of the media focus on these things we worry about it we become frightened about it and we place so much emphasis on it but if you look at the other side of the coin there are hundreds thousands of people getting heart disease maybe getting cancer dying in car accident we don't place as much emphasis on heart disease and cancer and car accidents as we do on terrorism because the newspapers aren't bombarding us daily with messages about heart disease and cancer and car accidents and in reality the possibility of being involved in a car accident is so much greater than it is being involved in a terrorist attack. And yet the terrorist attack is the thing that we worry about most. It's it's interesting. So there's a couple of things to realize. I said in one of my TEDx talks, speaking to this, to this concept, mm. if something makes the news, I mean, if something is newsworthy, it is by definition a low probability event. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make it to the nightly news if it happens very much. That's what makes it newsworthy, right? So yeah. if you're seeing it on the news, you have to sort of check yourself and say, look, the very fact that it's here means it's it's a rare event. And then, you know, last night with this hor- this horrible thing that happened in Spain, and I I don't mean to in any way uh, any wise minimize, you know, the the horror, the terror of all that. But last night, my family and I were out for um, at a pub, like out at an Irish pub in our neighborhood, actually. And we were, uh, you know, eating this very heavy food. And there's a TV on over the bar and we're watching about this and commenting on, you know, how terrible. And it sort of dawned on me that as terrible as that event was, my drive to the pub and the hamburger I was eating were much more were much much more dangerous to me, um, probabilistically speaking, than what I was watching and worrying about on TV. So you're right, we do we do all number of truly dangerous things every day. Um, you know, smoke, eat eat heavy food, things like this, and and worry about the apocalypse. <laughs> Obviously, you've, the the book you've written, Laws of Wealth: Psychology and the Secret of Investing Success, is predicated on these four areas we've just discussed: emotion, ego, conservation, and attention. So, what does a financial advisor do when he sat opposite his client? What does he do to avoid? falling into these traps himself, I guess, or herself, but also how do you overcome these irrationalities in human behavior and get people to make proper, well-informed decisions? So in in part one of the book, I give sort of my 10 commandments of investor behavior, and mm-hmm. that's that's set up for advisors to look at this and, and, and try and help manage these 10 things in, in the clients they serve. And then in part two of the book, I, tar- I talk about creating an investment process that is robust to these four primary types of errors. Mm-hmm. So just in terms of high level, though, I think that there's two two big things that you can do, right? The first is to enlist outside help. Yeah. And so 
I am myself a financial advisor. Um, you know, I've written a number of books on these topics. I speak once a week to large crowds about these topics. And I pay a financial advisor to, to manage my money because I know, uh, I know what I don't know. And I know that when it comes to my money, I can give you the best advice in the world about your money. But when it comes to my money, I'm just in, as scared and stupid as the next person. And I know I'm going to do the wrong thing at the most inopportune time. So I think this is a lesson that that it's just like in love or money or anything else in which we're so passionate and, and rolled up in it. We can't be clear headed about this. So enlisting outside help is something that I would suggest uh, to, to advisors and clients alike. And then the second piece is to automate wherever possible. Mm -hmm. The research on willpower is remarkably weak, uh, or, or the research is strong that shows that willpower is weak. Um, it's quickly used up, and we just don't apply it in the ways that we think we're going to. So everyone, you know, I, was, I was on a plane the other day, and I, I sat down next to this this woman, and she kindly ask, you know, where are you going? What do you do? And I told her what I did. And she goes, let me get this straight. You had to go to eight years of college to tell people to buy low and sell high. <laughs> <laughs> and this is based, this is based on this mistaken notion that knowing it is enough to do it. Yes. And unless, unless it's automated and unless you have enlisted this sort of barrier in the, in the form of someone else to help you, I can promise you that you're just not going to do the right thing at the right time. Because when that time comes around, you're going to be scared and you're going to be uh, misguided. And research shows that we lose 13% of our IQ under stress. Wow. And so e even if you know the right thing to do, you're just not going to do it when the time comes. The, these are really interesting, thought-provoking ideas, Daniel. I mean, again, it, it's not just finance, this, is it? As you've said, it could be love, it could be buying a house, it could be buying a car. It, it, any transaction that we do, any interaction that we have as human beings, we are going to be affected by all these biases, which is why asking people for advice is so sensible in almost every situation. Yeah, abs absolutely. I there's a study. I'll give away all the good studies in the book. There's a study, <laughs> there's a study in the book that I speak to that talks about marital infidelity, and they looked at the the causes of marital infidelity or the the predictors of marital infidelity, and they thought you know people's maybe their religious beliefs or their self-professed ethics would be the most uh, the most salient predictor of whether or not people cheated. Yeah, and the. The biggest predictor of, of cheating was travel. So right. people who were gone a lot cheated a lot. And so basically they were in situations where cheating became became easy. And the second best predictor, by the way, was was money. Right. <laughs> so, so so people who had money and who, who were away from home a lot were, were more likely to stray because they were in situations where it became easy to stray. Um, and the same is true of, of financial behaviors. You, you can't put yourself in a position where you have to rely on your willpower because it's going to be most depleted when you need it most. So fascinating. One of the things I also like to talk about on the podcast, and this is a this is a subject that comes up more and more as I speak to people like yourself, is this whole issue of, I guess it's called personal branding to a certain extent. Now, you've built yourself a, a remarkably um, focused personal brand on this whole issue of 
psychology and behavioral finance. And as a result of that, you are speaking on many stages across the world, albeit not in Scotland, as we've, uh, as we said in the green room before. And hopefully somebody listening to this podcast might decide to invite you over to the UK to, to, to make a speech. But I, I'm fascinated just as we come towards the end of our chat today, Daniel, to, to learn a little bit more about how you got into this whole TEDx area of things. I'm a speaker as well. I've been speaking on stages for about the last 25 years. I sort of got out of it a bit when I got into a senior management role in big corporate, but I'm a consultant now and I'm back out there and I'm back out doing presentations. But the whole TEDx, well, the TED and the TEDx thing fascinates me because it's all about a simple message, isn't it? You only have whatever it is, 18 minutes to get your point across, as opposed to quite a lot of financial services presentations, which usually go on for about five hours and have about 5,000 slides involved in them. TEDx is all about stories and message, isn't it? It is. So first of all, Scotland, let's make it happen. Yes. Get, get me over there. Okay. But now to the, to the real point. Um, Again, like everything in life, uh, I got lucky. I wish, again, I wish I could say people were so overwhelmed by my research. I knew someone who was a TEDx event organizer and so was asked by this associate, this friend of mine, to speak at a TEDx event. Um, my first TEDx talk was called You're Not That Great. <laughs> it, was called, <laughs> it was called You're Not That Great. And it was basically speaking to this idea of overconfidence and, and saying, Look, one of the keys to having a good life, being a good investor, having a good life is realizing that you're not special. And I and I cited a lot of research in there about sort of entitlement and how it erodes notions of hard work um, and how it can also lead us to be sort of racist and bigoted. Anyway, you can watch the talk. But that talk really caught fire mm -hmm. because I think it was um, – I was I became sort of an anti-hero with that talk because it's not the thing that people are used to hearing from a psychologist. They're they're used to hearing, oh, you know, you're you're wonderful. Build your self-esteem. This is why you're special. Follow your passion. And I, I took the opposite tact, and it did very well. And that got me subsequently invited to to give a number of other TEDx talks, which I've I've enjoyed all of them. But it is they're they're the scariest talks I give mm. um, because you can hide a lot of fluff and nonsense in a 45 minute or hour conversation. But when it's 15 minutes and you know that tens of thousands of people will watch it, uh, you, you really have to be sharp. So I would encourage, you know, anyone listening that has a unique message to, to share to look up a local TEDx event and, and try and try and rock the stage. I'm going to put that on my to-do list, Daniel. I'm going to do that as well. <laughs> as we it was I, a huge, huge help for me professionally. I can't can't say enough good about it. What would be the one thing that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take out of all the experiences you've had being a TED talker, writing your books on psychology, working on behavioral finance? Is there one thing that you could you could say that we should take away? You know, I'll speak to the, the TEDx thing. I, I looked back on the first professional presentation I, I ever gave. I found the, the deck the other day, the slide deck, and it was a 40-minute presentation, and I had 85 slides, <laughs> <laughs> which is just an abomination. I mean, you know, knowing what I know now, um, you can be confident that the people you're speaking to or, or marketing to will get one to two things out of your presentation. Mm. And so to build those one or two things, uh, to be cognizant of those going in 
and to illustrate those things through a combination of facts and stories. I think that stories are sort of the great Trojan horse for facts. And mm. anytime you can embed a principle, uh, a, a, a mathematical, a statistical, a financial principle within a relatable story, uh, you've, you've really done uh, excellent work, though. So focusing on one or two things and conveying that hard idea with a simple story. Stories are Trojan horses for facts. That is going to find its way onto the show notes page. I guarantee it. That's a great quote. I love that. Thinking outside of of day-to-day work, Daniel, I always like to ask my guests if there's a a marketing campaign or a product or something that's caught your attention recently that's made you sit up and think, wow, I really like that message or I really like that product. Could you maybe give me an example and tell me what it was and what you liked about it? So I would invite all the listeners, uh, primarily a UK audience, but I would invite all the listeners to come to Atlanta, Georgia, to go through what's called the World of Coke. <laughs> um, so the World of Coke, you know, Coca-Cola yeah. Company is headquartered here, you know, argue, probably inarguably one of the top five or ten brands in the world, arguably the top brand in the world. And that museum to Coca-Cola is a a course in branding. Yes. And so what Coca-Cola has done is take this product, which is just terrible for you. (laughs) They've taken, you know, they've taken this project, uh, this product that's full of caffeine and sugar, and they have conflated it with the good life. Yes. And so I think Coke does a better job than anyone of positioning their product within uh, just conflating it with the good life because you know as simon sinek says people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it Mm -hmm. and you know coke has an endless amount of imitators pepsi all the off brands and uh they still win on this history of just tying their product to the things that people want most out of life so they don't like all the best brands in the world apple coke uh you know nike they don't com- compete on bits and bytes. They don't compete on having the best widget. They couch it in a larger conversation. All of them do. Yeah. And when Steve, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, they had the superior product, but they didn't take on their competitors in terms of their feeds and speeds. They put their, their brand up there with the likes of Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Mother Teresa and all these other people who were great people. And they let that halo effect take place. So, yeah, just couch your brand in the things that people want most and compete on that and not the actual uh, ins and outs of your widget. And is there a business book you've read recently that similarly made you think, wow, I really like this and I really like the ideas contained in the pages or on the screen? So I am a huge nerd and I am going back to school for some reason. And I'm going back to school next week and I'm going to get a master's in artificial intelligence. Okay. And and so I'm reading books uh, right now on machine learning and artificial intelligence. And the most recent book I read, which was great, was called Algorithms to Live By. And it was talking about sort of applying the rigor of computer science and algorithmic decision making to to everyday choices about love and money and, and everything else. So I highly recommend that book. If there's anybody listening to the podcast who wants to get in touch with you, possibly about that speaking opportunity in Scotland, what's the best way that they should connect with you? 
Um, you can go to my website, uh, nocturnecapital.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Daniel Crosby. And I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And I'll include links to that website and the Twitter and the LinkedIn um, profiles in the show notes of the podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. Daniel, it's been fascinating to talk to you this afternoon about all things behavioral finance. I think I could have probably carried on talking to you for a lot longer. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck in the future. When you get that speaking gig in Scotland, let's meet up and have a proper chat over a proper coffee in a proper cafe. That sounds like a proper idea. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps, and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional, or journalist, and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay? 